Jericho. Yeah. I'm so excited that Janet Mock is going to join us today. Me too. She's awesome. I've met her a few times and actually interviewed her for our website a a while ago when uh, her last book came out. Mm -hmm. But first, we need to talk about something that gets me really excited, which is sleeping. Love it. Can you hear in my voice that I wish I was sleeping right now? There's never a time where I don't wish I was sleeping in parachute home sheets. And you have them, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your parachute sheets. They're so comfy. They're like all linen. And they just make me feel like a really fancy lady. Yeah. And they're just the right amount of heaviness, like because they're linen, like you have them on you and the weight of them makes you feel like safe. And they're made without harmful chemicals or any synthetic softeners, which I think is really important. I think not having harmful chemicals in anything that we use, especially something you're putting your face on for eight eight hours a day. Hopefully you're getting eight. It's scary what your body absorbs. So visit parachutehome.com slash girlboss for free shipping and returns. That's parachutehome.com slash girlboss for free shipping and returns. Parachute offers a 60-night trial, so you can sleep in your sheets for 60 nights, and if you don't love them, just send them back, no questions asked. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Janet Mock is a writer, TV host, and advocate. Born and raised in Hawaii, she got a master's in journalism from New York University and went on to pursue a career in media. She worked as an editor at People, hosted a series of specials for MSNBC, and appeared on OWN's Super Soul Sunday, where Oprah Winfrey called her a fearless new voice and trailblazing leader who changed her way of thinking. And so I feel like at the root of it, I'm a storyteller whether I'm telling my own story or whether I'm telling someone else's story. And a part of the work that I do is that I combat stigma and shame through the act of telling stories. Janet's memoir, Redefining Realness, debuted on the New York Times bestsellers list in 2014. Her second book, Surpassing Certainty, a memoir about her 20s, was released in June of this year. The book's title is an allusion to Audre Lorde, who wrote, And at last you'll know with surpassing certainty that only one thing is more frightening than speaking your truth, and that is not speaking. It was the years in my life when I was in college, went to grad school, building and making my way in mainstream magazine publishing as a woman as a person of color and as a trans woman who wasn't necessarily open about being trans at that time in my life. Janet certainly uses her voice. She's a sought-after speaker and advocate for trans women's rights and the founder of Hashtag Girls Like Us, a social media project that empowers trans women. Now what we need is more comrades and more people who are 
moved away from complacency, moved to actually show up for people who are not like them, to move outside of themselves and move. The thing that strikes me about Janet is her ability to unpack complicated and nuanced conversations about gender, race, and issues facing women with ease. Today, she'll join us to do just that, and I hope that all of us walk away with a deeper understanding of the challenges the trans community is facing and the ways we can all be better allies. So we're going to get into the conversation with Janet Mock in just a minute, but first here's Jericho Mandibur, who's Girlboss.com's editorial director. Hi. And our resident, I don't know, breaking news about things that will always be true. Sure. Post. Um, <laughs> and today we're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? Um, meal prepping. Meal prepping. What do you think about it? I think it's terribly boring mm-hmm. um, and important. Mm-hmm. Because being healthy when you're running around eating out, um, which you probably shouldn't be for lunch, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and maybe once in a while for dinner, but I don't know. I like being at home. Yeah, I eat out constantly and I've never, never really meal prepped before. Never. So I, I got a lot out of this article that our dietitian Alexandra Reed wrote. And it's basically about how meal prepping doesn't have to be as boring or intimidating as you think it does. It can be really, really simple. And you just start with the most realistic thing, which is like, when will you eat out? Like, if you know you're going to be away for dinner and drinks on a Saturday night, like factor that into your planning Mm -hmm. and then factor in things like making sure you cook and prep like a few meals so that you can stagger them throughout the week and you're not eating the same vegetable soup for seven days. Mm -hmm. Which can be so nice. I mean, I go through phases where I vary what I eat and then other times where I will eat the same thing for breakfast and lunch, like five days of the week. Yeah, there's something to be said for not having to make decisions about food. Yeah, not thinking. It's one less thing. You know, it seems like a dream to be able to like choose whatever you want, whenever you want it, and then eat it. (laughs) And I've done a lot of that. I mean, I'm sure we all have. And then, I don't know, it's just, it's less decision making. There's a certain point where you reach like decision fatigue and what to put in your body. Mm -hmm. Is one thing that you can make a decision about on Sunday nights. Mm Mm-hmm. And then just put it in your body, not even mm-hmm. think about it later on. <laughs> yeah, totally. And also, Alexander is like pretty big on factoring in time for self care and well being mm-hmm. stuff every day. So, basically, in consultation with her, girlboss.com has created like a meal prepping worksheet. So, you can basically like download the form, print it out, fill it out because it's all very much like up to you and your unique lifestyle as to what you're going to eat on any given day. Stick it on your fridge and there you go. You're welcome. Cool. We should talk about the rally. Yay. Right? Yes. So so the Girl Boss Rally is coming November 11th to mm-hmm. Brooklyn, New York. We're going to have over 25 incredible speakers. Tickets are on sale now at oh girlbossrally.com. And so far, we have Beth Comstock, who's the vice chair at GE, Neha Gandhi, who's our COO um, and editor-in-chief. Jericho will be there on stage. Sarah Kunst, who was on the podcast last week. Alyssa Mastermonico, who's Amazing. also been on this podcast, has a book called Who Thought This Was a Good Idea, where she's sitting on President Obama's lap <laughs> on the cover. 
Lisa Price, who's the founder and CEO of Carol's Daughter, Whitney Wolf, the founder of Bumble, the dating app you might be using, and Linda Wells, who's the chief creative officer at Revlon, and many, many more speakers that we're going to announce every week on this podcast between now and then. Uh, So go to girlbossrally.com to get your tickets. Also, I have another book coming out. Not a surprise. It's called The Girl Boss Workbook. It's fully illustrated, front to back, not a single, like, typeface in it. It's really fun. It's um, so fun. Oh, thanks. It comes I out on it. October 24th, and you can pre-order that anywhere books are found. And now we're going to talk a little bit about Kopari, uh, one of my favorite product lines. You like coconut oil, right? Love it. Who doesn't love coconut oil? Big fan. It's kind of like a catch-all Forever. You can just like use it on pretty much any part of your body. You can like ingest it. You can swish it around in your mouth. You can rub it all over your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kopari, it's K-O-P-A-R-I, um, is a line of products made from 100% organic coconut oil. And they have a lightweight sheer oil that's great for a face moisturizer. They have a coconut balm that has aloe in it. It's super soothing. I've been using it all the time. Coconut oil is the best thing for my hair that I've ever used. Because you have really curly hair. I basically don't like wash it anymore. I just put like apple cider vinegar in it and then coconut oil to condition and it's like, bam. Wow, it looks really clean. Thank you. It's very shiny. Really? It's hard. Yeah, well, the light in here. But like having curly hair that's also shiny seems really hard. My hair's only shiny when it's like stick straight. It's a testament to Kopari. So for the best hair and skin of your life, try Kopari, go to koparibeauty.com slash girlboss to get 20% off your order. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash girlboss for 20% off. Jericho, I know you're not a big wine drinker, but when you are going to a friend's house for dinner of the holidays, it's a nice gesture to bring a bottle of wine for your hostess or for me. Okay. Just bring me one. Have you heard of Wink? No. So Wink... Uh, it's W-I-N-C, but, you know, I, I I like to think about it as like a bottle of wine that's winking at me as it shows up on my doorstep. So Wink is a subscription business where you can take a survey about your palate, the kinds of wines that you like, and Wink will curate bottles of wine just for you, and they'll come right onto your doorstep. So no heavy bags being lugged from the stinky liquor store where someone's going to be leering at you. You get your wine straight to your front doorstep. The bottles start at just $13, but you get really high-quality wine because they're cutting out the middlemen. These bottles normally retail for over $20. And you know that, like, there's some rule where, like, if if it's a $20 bottle of wine, the taste doesn't improve from, like, 20 to, like, $100. Like, 20 is, is kind of like the... Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, I've, like, talked to sommeliers and stuff. Like, the quality of the wine doesn't really increase that much once you hit, like, $20. So mm. throw out your two-buck chuck. Sign up for Wink. Um, there's no membership fees. You can skip any month, cancel any time. And they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So you never pay for a bottle you don't like. It doesn't count for hangovers, so that's your fault. <laughs> uh, go to trywink.com. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com. And right now, Wink is offering our listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash girlboss. That's trywink spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash girlboss to get 20% off your first order. Trywink.com slash girlboss. 
Hey, guys, remember, if you haven't purchased your tickets to the Girl Boss Rally yet, you better get your shit together because they're selling out fast. And now I'd like to introduce to you a true firestarter. Janet Mock uses her voice to dismantle stereotypes, empower women, and debunk assumptions about gender. Here, without further ado, is Janet Mock. I'm the second most famous black person from Hawaii. Oh my God, who's the first? Barack Obama. Oh, derp. (laughs) (laughs) Derp. So -hmm. tell me about your early life in Hawaii. Like, what's your family like? I'm one of five, so I'm the middle of five kids. My dad was in the Navy. That's how he met my mom, who's a native Hawaiian woman. She's from a town called Kalihi. Um, She worked on Pearl Harbor Naval Base, and that's how she met my dad. And so I am the first of their kids together. My mom had two kids from her first marriage beforehand. So we're a nice little blended. Modern family. Yeah, modern family. Tons of kids. Cool. Poor family. What was your first job? (laughs) My first job was at a store called Wild Flowers in Pearl Ridge Mall in Aiea, Hawaii, on Oahu. And I worked as a sales associate. I got my, I think my work permit at like 15 and a half. And so that started like my retail life and my fascination with getting a discount to buy clothes. Yeah. My my early (laughs) beginnings were, well, it was Subway sandwiches and then it was Mm -hmm. retail. And we sold basically like spaghetti strap maxi dresses, platform flip flops. So your style has evolved. It has clearly from wildflowers. Uh huh. Um, but you're still a wildflower. I am. Oh, I <laughs> what love does that. that even mean? <laughs> um. So a lot of us grew up with people telling us who we are and what we mm. should be. Do you feel like that was the case for you? Oh, completely. Yeah. Thinking about like even just being growing up in a space like Hawaii, which is super liberal, super like multicultural, a lot of brown and Polynesian and Asian people, there still was a sense of like the ways in which like even local culture was a lot slower, that if you wanted something outside of Hawaii, that it seemed people kind of looked down on you a little bit like the Hawaii is not enough. So there was that layer. Then, of course, for me. As a trans girl growing up, it was also the next layer of like people not seeing me the way that I saw myself and having to fight against other people's like preconceived notions and expectations of who I should be or how I should present or what's considered out there. Um, and so like always bucking against these norms was something that I, I did fairly early on in my life. At what age did you start like dressing like a girl? Yeah. I would say it would be about 12 years old. Amazing. Yeah, 12. Wow. Well, 10 years old, I like came up with an alter ego named Keisha. Ooh. And I would take on my dad's girlfriend's teenage daughter. I would like answer the phone for like the boyfriend she was tired of. And then I would like have these long conversations with them as Keisha. That's amazing. <laughs> so I was like, Demetria doesn't want to talk to you anymore, but this is Keisha. And da, da, da. And so like that was the first time that I felt like I wasn't wearing girls' clothes at the time, but it was the first time I expressed myself as a girl, like just vocally. And yeah. so I was just like making up stories about like the things that I got to do with my girlfriends at the mall. Like all these things that I was jealous of Demetria being able to do. First of all, she was 16 and I was like 10 years old. Is that your sister? No, she was like my, my father's girlfriend's daughter. Okay. So she was like my stepsister, but not really. <laughs> And so I thought she was so cool. 
Like she was it's like cool everything. Name. And she had to talk to boys and she had boyfriends and she had so many guys she talked on the phone with because the phone was like everything back then. And so Keisha was like my first instance. But then the first time I was able to dress up was around 12 years old when I met my best friend, Wendy. Cool. And she was the one that was like, she had like the gateway to all things feminine. Makeup, you know, hair, wigs, braids, jewelry. What was it clothes. like talking to your parents about that? Like at 12 mm. years old being like, hey guys, I need a new wardrobe. I think they kind of slowly saw it. Like by that time, my parents were separated. So I was only with my mom in Hawaii. And it wasn't really a conversation we had. I think the only conversation we had about like my gender and stuff was when I was 13. And I was just like, I think I'm a girl. And she was like, "Uh uh-huh. She was like processing and like trying to create a safe space. And she didn't really know what that meant. Because at that time, like girl to me was like, or, like, the way I was expressing my girlhood was, like, through, like, lip smackers mm-hmm. and, like, platform sneakers and maybe some, like, eyebrow tweezing and eyeshadow. Yeah. Like, it was very, like, she Me wasn't, too. she wasn't, <laughs> yeah, she wasn't thinking, like, oh, she's going to, like, change her name and she's going to, like, go on hormones and all these things that eventually happened in my teenage years. Yeah. But, so at that point, it was just, like, I wanted to be able to, like, have a safe space to express myself. And my mom was really great in that sense of, like, number one, she was a single working mother. So she didn't have time to, like, micromanage my gender identity and expression, which was great and which was a blessing to me. Um, the next layer is that, we, we grew up in Hawaii. And so in Hawaii, there is a space for gender nonconformity. Um, there's an identity there in the native Hawaiian culture, which my mom is from, called Mahu. And Mahu basically literally kind of like translates loosely to like transgender. And so there's a space for a third gender in native Hawaiian culture that I got lucky that I grew up in that space and was and was transitioning and discovering myself and my gender as a young person and having doing that in the backdrop of this like cultural space where there actually was a definition to describe me. That's amazing. I interviewed Gina Rosero for mm-hmm. this podcast a while back and I remember her telling me about the culture in gosh, the Philippines. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just like how there's places where I mean very clearly unlike here that really embrace trans culture mm-hmm. and cel- not 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 just like embrace it but celebrate it. Do you think we can ever become that way on on the mainland? <laughs> I hope so. I think that we're getting to a space where at least there is an acknowledgement of yeah. the existence yeah. of trans folk. And I think that indigenous cultures tend to have a longer framework of knowing that there is diversity of gender, there's diversity of sexuality in a way that I think a lot of like Western, like Pur- Christian, Puritanical, yeah, like, Christian, yeah. like you know, gender binary or binary spaces are kind of a bit more reluctant to letting go of that. A lot of fear. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your college experience. You went to college in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Well, I went in with the intention of being an attorney because I was obsessed with Allie McBeal. Oh, my God. Um, So this is a teenager. This is a teenager. And then I took a philosophy course, which was a requirement. And I was like, I'm not into this. And then I took... Just by coincidence, I followed a friend taking an elective course in, like, the APDM department. APDM is apparel, product design, and merchandising. Oh, cool. And so then I went into fashion merchandising, which I thought was what I wanted to do. And then I got a minor in journalism. And so I started writing for the school paper, kind of writing, like, puff pieces on, like, clothes and, like, trends. And then that that got boring to me after a while. And so I just got my fashion degree 
wrote some really great articles about things that were non-fashion related and then went to graduate school in New York City to get my journalism degree so that I could like be a real journalist. Did you always know you wanted to leave Hawaii? Yeah. It just was so small. And there also really wasn't any weren't any jobs unless you were going to work in like the travel and hospitality. Yeah. Like that was like really the only industry there. And so everyone kind of fed into that. And I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. And I knew that like working at Honolulu Magazine wasn't going to be the pinnacle for me. <laughs> not that it's not a good job, but there was only one Honolulu Magazine. Was your family supportive of it? Well, they always, I was always that kid. I was always the middle child who wanted to do more, always told people what I was going to do. And so they weren't really surprised. And so they were like, Janet's on her way and she's going to make it happen. What would you say to someone who wants to get out of the tiny town they grew Mm -hmm. up in and whose family may not be supportive of it? L.A. and New York are full of people from tiny towns uh-huh. who are too big for the little spaces they came from. And then they want to be, you know, smaller fishes in bigger ponds. Yeah. <laughs> so, or bigger fishes in bigger yeah, ponds. Yeah, hopefully you, like, you try to swim and become that big, right? I guess if we're going to stick with that analogy. I think that being focused is something, you know, being focused on what you want to do, um, but also being open enough to to kind of like improvise and figure out those weird connections and friendships and things that can open up different kinds of doors for you. Janet's new book, Surpassing Certainty, What My Twenties Taught Me, is an homage to her 20s. The years she spent struggling to find her place in this crazy world and come out the other side and hopefully clear that the only certainty is change. Well, Surpassing Certainty is a memoir about my 20s. Um, It was the years in my life when I was in college, went to grad school, building and making my way in mainstream magazine publishing as a woman, as a person of color, and as a trans woman who wasn't necessarily open about being trans at that time in my life. And what was so great about moving to New York City at 22 years old was that I was able to be this small fish in this giant pond and be another girl in the crowd, another 20-something trying to make her magazine dreams, you know, come true. And so it was great to be able to have that experience and to reflect on that. I think that without having those anonymous years, the years of my life when I really was trying to figure out how to make my own way and advocate for myself before even trying to advocate for others. Like I needed that space to just breathe and improvise and make mistakes and sleep with guys and do all of these random things that I think that is really suited to the 20 something. White people move to New York in their 20s. (laughs) So magazine dreams. Mm -hmm. What was your first job out of college? Well, tons of internships. So I interned at Playboy magazine as an editorial intern while I was in grad school. I then interned at InStyle Magazine, and InStyle Magazine landed me my first job because within the Time, Inc. um, realm of magazines and Time, Inc. company, I was able to apply for a um, freelance position for People.com, which they were relaunching. And I was a writer researcher for them. And eventually, after six months, I was hired full time with benefits and a 401k, fully vest girls, fully vest in that, invest in that 401k. Mm-hmm. Don't play around. Because I left after five years and I ended up being fully vested, which wow. was amazing. And what was your beat at People magazine? Celebrity, celebrity, celebrity. And what was that like? <laughs> what did you learn just jumping straight into pop culture out of grad school? Oh, God. I remember being, because at the time I was 23, so I was a part of like 
the youth, like I was like pop culture, like pop culture was created for me. And so like I remember being at People, which is very like very A-list celebrity driven and telling them that they needed to pay attention to the hills. Oh, like that's how. And they were like, the hills? What's the hills? And I was like, Lauren Conrad and Audrina and like, you know, Heidi and Spencer and Brody. Like, I remember that being such, and it was a huge draw for the website. So like the website audience I learned was a lot younger than the magazine audience. And so being in that space at that time was all about like all of my interests being the height of what other young readers who are online clicking around at photos and looking for celebrity images and baby bumps and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's what I was doing. And it was really fun for three years, like sitting in a cubicle and going to parties and interviewing celebrities. And then after a while, I was like, is that all there is? Is this like all I'm going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And that's what led to the next part of my life, which was deciding to go inward and to tell my own story. And that's what led to the first article written about me in 2011, which was a profile in Marie Claire magazine, which is how we connected Mm -hmm. in real life. And that article changed my life. And what was that article exactly? That article basically was the really women's magazine 1500 word article that can like summarize and tell my story in that amount of time. Not very long. So, not very long. So basically, it was like, you know, the premise was like 26 year old Janet Mock has everything great hair, cute boyfriend, and a dream job. But she's ready to open up. And tell her story as a trans woman. Like, that basically was the story. And it was great, and it was inspirational. I think it really, for young women, it really helped, specifically for young trans women who rarely, at that point in 2011, were able to see themselves in women's magazines. They were able to see themselves. They were able to see a story of a young trans woman thriving in the world who was owning her narrative and owning her truth. And that led to me getting a book deal, writing my first book, Redefining Realness, enabling me to then go on and have these conversations in media about gender, about feminism, about race issues, and kind of launch this next phase of of my career. We'll be right back with Janet Mock after a word from me, but also me as Squarespace. So I'm Squarespace right now. And as Squarespace, I'm really proud that Girlboss.com is hosted on my platform. Mm -hmm. And to provide an offering for entrepreneurs and creatives where they can create, uh, design and build their own websites super easily and quickly with just a few clicks of a button. I have a very intuitive uh, user experience and make what used to be just so challenging to do, which is make a beautiful custom website uh, incredibly easy. So whether you're starting from scratch or you're in need of an update with Squarespace, you can create a super beautiful website to showcase your work, publish content, sell your products, or promote your project. And Jericho, you're, you're, in, you're deep in their admin all day long. Love Squarespace. It's so easy to use. It's a joke. Yeah. You just drag things around and they turn into a website. I know. For I mean, you, like looks, magic. I mean, look at us. We're so professional. Mm-hmm. The most. I mean, we're publishing. I mean, you're legit. Like, mm-hmm. I, mean, I try. I'm still trying. 
If you want to try Squarespace, you can go to squarespace.com and use code GIRLBOSS for 10% off. I highly recommend that you do before you talk to an engineer or anybody. Seriously, you don't need it. You don't need anyone to Squarespace. You really, really don't. So go to squarespace.com. That's S-Q-U-A-R-E-S-P-A-C-E.com and use code GIRLBOSS for 10% off. All right, we're back with Janet Mock. In Surpassing Certainty, we learn that long before she became one of the world's most respected voices in media and lauded leaders for equality and justice, Janet was a girl taking the time she needed to just be, to learn how to advocate for herself before becoming an advocate for others. So I think a lot of things were happening at like age 25. Things took a turn for me. I was getting out of my first relationship, which was my first marriage. I was going into another relationship at the same time that I was been at my job for like three years. I was feeling like not really challenged. I almost felt I was on autopilot sitting in my cubicle. The cultural conversation at that time was around a lot of LGBT youth suicide and bullying. And so I felt as if I was sitting on this experience and this story of my own that I wasn't telling. And for a long time, I was kind of surviving by being able to tell very famous people's stories. Like, no one wants to hear about me when I'm telling a story about Angelina Jolie. And so it was a great space to be in. But at the same time, I felt that I was kind of holding back. And so all of these things converged, this breakup, this new relationship, not feeling challenged at work, and then the cultural conversation about the need for LGBT youth to have resources. And in that conversation, I was seeing a gap that a lot of people were talking about gay and lesbian youth, but they were not talking about the unique challenges of trans youth. And so as someone who grew up as a trans teenager, I felt that I had a way to tell them that, you know, there is success. There's something on the other side. If you can make it through, if you can if you can resist, if you can find your people, if you can deal with some bullshit for a little while, if you can deal with people talking about you. And so that's what led to me telling my own story. And what was so strange for me at the time was that I was so used to asking people questions and not really having to answer questions. And so that was the switch for me being from the person writing the story to being the person that's the subject of the story. And so I spent a lot of my, I guess, three years of my public life getting used to that. And then I was able, which I got so lucky to do, was to go back and become a host again, to become a journalist, to write cover stories about celebrities again with my own unique experiences being the framework at which I ask people questions. And so I feel like now it's a bit more blended that I can have this part of me that's like the feminist and the advocate, the writer, but at the same time also then not have to have all of these things be separate. And so I feel like at the root of it, I'm a storyteller, whether I'm telling my own story or whether I'm telling someone else's story. And a part of the work that I do is that I combat stigma and shame through the act of telling stories. So that's how I kind of blend it all together. Wow, that's you've how done, I make it make you've sense. You've done to a lot of like thinking about this. I have. That's almost like a like the kind of exercise that a brand does to say like, <laughs> what is our reason for being? Like, what is the problem we're trying to solve in the world? That's so amazing because while you were speaking, I wrote down purpose question mark, and I was going to yeah. say like, is this your purpose? Mm. Like, is that your purpose? And you pretty much just said, I think so though. I yes. think that, and I think I've only made that make sense to myself in probably the last maybe the last like eight months 
and I think it was preparing for my second book coming out, that I really was like, what am I trying to do here? Like, I know it's about, people say that, you know, just living authentically alone is like a form of activism, right? The personal is political. But I knew that it needed to be more than that. I knew that telling my truth had to be more than just me telling my story and that there needed to be reasons why I released myself from certain, like, shame and all this stuff that I had around certain experiences, whether that was, you know, stripping, whether that was engaging in sex work, whether that was, you know, being a trans young person, whether... All the things that that were like experiences of my, whether it's being like you know, assaulted in college, like all of these things, I write about them so that I can free someone else from the anxieties and the shames that I had attached to me, my body, and my experiences. And so that's why I do the work that I do. Let's stop and put this into perspective. According to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, up to 80% of transgender youth report being bullied by their peers and over 50% report significant family rejection. The statistics are alarming. The Trevor Project, a nonprofit organization which provides crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to LGBTQ youth, shared a national study that showed 40% of transgender adults reported having made a suicide attempt. of these individuals reported having attempted suicide before the age of 25. Your personal experiences can serve as the root of your public podiums, right? Like, that's a start. So a woman standing up and saying that I was sexually assaulted, a person standing up and saying that I had an abortion, someone saying, you know, I'm trans, I'm queer, I think that that's a starting point. And so from there, I think that we have to be careful then to then label people activists just because they went up and told their story. Mm -hmm. I think the next layer of activism is actually acting Mm -hmm. right, and doing, you know, actually doing intentional work to educate yourself, to educate other people, to check and challenge people, to if you can put your body on the line, you know, for certain causes that are not just linked to your own personal experience. And so I think that that's a... That's an um, ongoing thing that we all have to kind of do. But I think it's a start. I think telling your story is a start. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm just thinking about like armchair kind of, mm-hmm. you know, people who mm-hmm. have beliefs but aren't like active mm-hmm. in, in advocating for them. How have you gained, I mean, earned really the confidence to be who you are today and to mm-hmm. be so clear on your purpose? Because that's a really hard thing to do. Do you ever have kind of bumps in the road with that yeah yeah. well I think that what's interesting is that most times when I'm like just doing stuff in the world I don't feel like I'm like doing it for a purpose yeah yeah (laughs) I guess that's it I'm like can I live you can only hold yourself to like (laughs) those high standards yeah (laughs) certain parts and so like a part of it to me is recognizing what's what part of my life and what part of the efforts that I'm doing is actually like work Right. And it's actually responsibility, which is actually duty. And so in those points, I'm very clear. But then other times I just want to like be able like, can I live? You know, like there's a part of me that just wants to like not be a symbol, not be a representative of, not be someone that's like carrying a baton for all these communities. And so that's the part where I think that I struggle the most with. And also the part where I have to check myself often that I'm not performing for anyone, meaning mm-hmm. like not even performing for my communities, right? Mm-hmm. Not performing activists, not performing revolutionary woman out in the world. But like just what does it mean to be Janet and to show up fully as myself? Because doing that is also a form of activism, right? It's really hard when you have eyes on mm-hmm. you expecting certain things yeah. from you that you, when you're a spokesperson 
person of mm-hmm. even if you haven't named yourself one yeah. of something mm-hmm. and and I'm sure you understand this on so many levels as well where it's like can I be a person that still even on this public stage make mistakes and then do we have empathy enough to to go on a journey with these public people that we put on pedestals right like I'm still a work in progress yeah. right like I'm still processing the world and these things and also being public is still new to me Right. But then we do these things where it's like, you know, you make one mistake and you also know that the outrage machine will then be quick to be like, let's dispose of her. Let's get rid of her. She's trash. Mm -hmm. She's garbage. And we do that over and over again with a lot of people. And I think it also it also, I think, prevents a lot of people from wanting to step forward and to do work because they're scared of that of that outrage machine that's also there to then dispose of folk. It's like outrageous outrage or something. Mm -hmm. And some of it, a lot of it is rightly, you know, should be there. Yeah, yeah. I think criticism is important. Constructive criticism. Yes, exactly. Um, And so for me, I think that I have to always check myself on trying to be something I'm not for anyone beyond myself. And so for me, the way that I got to being confident and assured has always been my ensuring that I had spaces where I didn't have to perform, spaces in which I can be problematic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in close circles of friends who don't expect me to like perform who don't ex- who who are completely fine with me showing up you know empty with nothing to give who just wants to watch you know like the Kardashians 10 year anniversary special Janet Mock is doing her best to stand up for all of us you me our brothers sisters friends I hope that right now you're thinking what can I do and here's what Janet has to say about that Violence against trans women, specifically trans women of color, is exceptionally high. I think that we've already hit in 2017, I think 20 trans women have been murdered. And that's just in the U.S. In Brazil, their numbers are like in the hundreds. Um, In Asia, it's similar. And so... It's obviously something that I think needs to be linked to violence against women globally, period. And I think that trans women need to be a part of that conversation. I think that enough is not being done about violence against women, period. And so when you throw on the intersection of race and gender identity, I think it gets that much more complicated. And you would think that because trans women of color specifically are people of color, are women, and are still part of the LGBT community, that there would be these three different coalitions showing up to fight for them. But what ends up often happening is that they fall in between the gaps of those so-called coalition movements. And so it's really frustrating. Um, it's really frustrating to continue to talk about every single year the amount of bodies that we lose. And oftentimes we only speak the names of trans women of color when they're no longer here. When they're actually here, like trying to get resources, trying to survive, trying to get an education, housing, food in their belly, employment, all of these things that no one's showing up to really fill those gaps. And so like a lot of the the things that make them vulnerable um, to violence is just daily access needs. Again, housing. You know, like having to think about the fact that a lot of trans youth, LGBT youth, period, are kicked out of hostile homes and intolerant schools as soon as they come out, as soon as they tell their truth. And then from there, you know, if a young person can't get an education, they then can't get a job. Therefore, they're on the streets on their own. They have to turn to survival and or underground economies to take care of themselves. And that makes them more susceptible to violence, to abuse, to criminalization, to HIV, AIDS, to death. And so these are the interconnected issues that I think are 
a part of the reasons why we need feminist movements that are super intersectional and that force us to have these complicated and courageous conversations about who we center in our movements. And so I think that who often are not centered, who are actually marginalized, are people who have these interlocking identities and who happen to be trans women of color. There's so many issues. What do you think the biggest issue facing the trans community is today? The biggest cultural issue is a lack of just understanding. Yeah. I think that that's one thing. I think that that's what leads to people being pushed out, people being exiled from public spaces, something as simple as the restroom. And I think politically, I think it's also just daily access issues. I think that it starts at home and in communities. And then from there, it's schools, places of employment that kind of continue to push people out and don't enable them to have access to the same things that everyone else kind of is able to have access to. At the Women's March earlier this year, Janet delivered an impassioned and compelling speech about women standing together. She said, Our approach to freedom need not be identical, but it must be intersectional and inclusive. It must extend beyond ourselves. I know with surpassing certainty that my liberation is directly linked to the liberation of the undocumented trans-Latina yearning for refuge, the disabled student seeking unequivocal access, the sex worker fighting to make her living safely. I asked her to talk about her feelings now that we're closing in on a year since Trump won the election. Well, I think that Trump has been really clear about his intention to rescind a lot of the policies that Obama administration has put forward to protect people, protect women, protect women from being sexually assaulted in college. Protect pretty much every anyone. <laughs> to, you know, protect, you know, allow <laughs> trans folk to serve in the military, allow trans students to have access to all the things that all students have access to, to make our schools safer, to make our communities safer. I think that, that he's been, Trump has been really clear about his intentions to undo a lot of that stuff, to ensure that people have health care. And so that's clear. That's, you know, just there. Um, on the next layer, I think that what is a grand undoing is this release of a lot of people's hatred, biases, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, like all of that is coming out in the open. And I think that um, Trump's probably starting from when he was campaigning, he was also very clear about speaking to a set of people that felt that there had to be silent in order to be PC, I mean, in order to not to be not to be criticized by liberals. And now he's encouraged them to show up in the streets so that they would show up in a place like Charlottesville and to actually have their white supremacist, neo-Nazi, you know, anti-Semitic stuff just out in the streets. And so it's not as if that wasn't there the past eight years of the Obama administration. It's always been there since America's making. And so I think that what the gift, if I can say that there's any gift, the gift that is there is that we're now seeing it, right? We're seeing it in ways that I think that generations who put their bodies on the line during the civil rights movement in the 60s, um, they saw that every day, right? And now we're seeing it. And I think that now what we need is more comrades and more people who are moved away from complacency, moved away from the armchair activism that you mentioned a little earlier, and who are moved to actually show up for people who are not like them, to move outside of themselves and move, 
right? Like the Women's March on Washington was about the sparking and the involvement of a movement. And so now we have to return after gathering together in the millions and to go into our communities and have these difficult conversations. That means showing up, if you're a white person, showing up to your Thanksgiving dinner and talking to your problematic father (laughs) and your problematic uncle and having those difficult conversations. That's a part of the work, Mm -hmm. right? I can't go to those spaces. It wouldn't be smart for me, and I don't think that people would listen to me in those spaces. But white folk will listen to their family members. You know, it may be difficult conversations to have, but I think that it can even start on that intimate level to hopefully spark some kind of new way of thinking, to spark some kind of empathy, to come in armed with stories that had moved you and hopefully will then move them um, on people's Facebook pages, maybe even that space. You know, don't block. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're probably problematic, you know, cousins, like instead have the conversations with them on those platforms and engage them in those ways, because that's the only way that we're going to have some kind of change that people actually act as forms of interventions around this, all of this stuff that's coming up. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was from Oprah Winfrey. And she told me it's a gift to be underestimated. Mm. And it al- I've always kept that one in my back pocket. Like, I'm like, huh. Because sometimes you want to, like, you want to fight people or fight for people to see all of the greatness that you can do. And instead, it's great to, like, just have people not think that you're going to be great. Such a and chill, just be great. like. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, hmm. Because trying to convince people of your greatness is not good. So instead, just do the work every single day and to exceed their low expectations of you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, huh. I like that. Do you feel like working with celebrities after three years and now being in the public eye and being, you know, a public person, a public person Mm -hmm. who makes mistakes, who's Mm -hmm. triggered the outrage machine? Mm -hmm. I feel like on the flip side of that, there's so many people that just like look that look up to celebrity that Mm -hmm. look at these people who are in the public eye and think that they have some knowledge of the world or some kind of special drink in the morning that Mm -hmm. makes them less fallible than the rest of us or Mm -hmm. not ask the same questions when they wake up or go to sleep or that the rest of us do or not Mm -hmm. struggle with the same things. Do you feel like being on the flip side of Oprah's advice, being Mm -hmm. unimpressed is, is a good strategy? I just, I've found in my life, the people that I admire and not all of them, but especially in my younger life that the people I admired, I kept growing in like evolved past mm. and look back and I'm like, wow, that's really something, you know. <laughs> and so on a more macro scale, mm. the people we admire and many of these people have earned their positions. But mm. at the end of the day, it's important to remember that they started out probably where you are, you know, or we are you know, mm-hmm. or were mm-hmm. in our teenage years or college years, just struggling and trying to find our place in the world. It's that that simple thing of like people are people for a lot of us is like make a way out of no way. Right. And so like, for me, a lot of it had to deal with like improvising and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And at the same time, turning to people who may have 
offer me semblances of like, oh, there's a part of a roadmap that I can follow to get to such and such. You know, part of those people were other writers like Zorna Hurston and Toni Morrison, um, Audre Lorde. Others were certain feminists who blazed trails, um, trans activists, um, you know, former bosses, mentors. And so all of them, I kind of was like picking and choosing from them. I don't think I'll ever surpass Oprah, mm. but... <laughs> me neither. <laughs> There is, you know, something there's all I think there's always something great to learn from anyone's experiences, though. And you mentioned mentors. Have you had a lot of mentors? No, I haven't. Not really. I had a lot of great people who advocated for me that enabled me to, like, swerve and make some moves or, like, um, avoid certain obstacles because they existed and because they were the ones who spoke up on my behalf. Oftentimes, I didn't know that they spoke up for me. I think about a counselor at my high school who did a lot of great work for me when I transferred into my new high school. And she, you know, went up to every teacher and told them that, you know, you have a trans student coming in. Her name is Janet. You know, call her by her chosen name, though it may not be on the attendance sheet. You know, if students say something, send them to me. I'll talk to them. If you have any questions, ask me. I'm here as a resource. Like she paved the way so that my road wouldn't be so bumpy. And it made my high school experience so much more fulfilling because I was able to just be a student and not have to worry about the work of having to teach my teachers on how to like be proper or to be respectful of me. And so in that way, I wouldn't say that she's like a mentor, but I say that she was like a really great guide that helped me like navigate that space so much better. And I always had those people pop up. I think about my best friend, Wendy, who I met in the seventh grade, and she was the one who taught me to be like unapologetic and self-assured to not give a flying fuck about what anyone says about you. I know. Yeah. (laughs) And she's still my best friend to this day. She still does my makeup when I'm in New York. So a lot of what we talk about a girl boss is success in this, you know, what is success? Mm -hmm. It's not financial. Mm -hmm. Can't just be financial. I mean, that's so boring. Um, What do you think Mm. the word success means? For me, I guess it would be like, Making a living, doing what you absolutely love doing, driven by your own sense of purpose, without having to compromise who you are, your principles, and being able to show up fully as who you are in those spaces, too. So it's, to me, it's all of that together. That's a really good definition of success. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we can fit it into a graphic for Instagram, but I want to... <laughs> Um, and last question. We talk about girl boss moments on this podcast. I don't mm-hmm. know where this came from. It just wound up being called girl boss moments, which just feels, I just still think it's kind of cheesy sounding, mm-hmm. but it works and yeah. I love it. And a girl boss moment is really the time in your week where you felt like you were in charge of your own life. Maybe not either living up to other people's expectations because mm-hmm. that's what you wanted to do at that moment mm-hmm. uh, or just completely ignoring them and taking time for yourself. What was a recent girl boss moment for you, Janet? I think it would be like today. I had a a long photo shoot today. They wanted me to wear a certain outfit. I didn't like it, but I put it on and I was about to do what they wanted me to do. And I said, you know what? I'd rather not wear this. I want to wear that over there and I don't feel comfortable shooting outside in it. And guess what? I do want more highlighter on my cheek. Even though you as a photographer don't like it, like I want more highlighter. So put more gold highlighter on my cheek. It was like a little simple thing. But I think about, you know, when you're a public person and you're on a shoot and you're also female, you think about the ways in which 
you being exacting about your desires and your needs and your wants, that communicating that will have people say like, oh, she was a lot today. Yeah. Like she wasn't great. She wasn't nice. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, no, no. What I did instead was center myself and my feelings and what I wanted today. Mm -hmm. And if you're not okay with that, that's your problem. It's not mine. Because at the end of the day, I'm the person whose image will going to go everywhere. And so if I don't like myself in that outfit and I don't like the amount of makeup that you have on me in this particular shot, in this particular location, in this bad lighting... You're going to be okay as a photographer. I'm the one that's going to feel uncomfortable. And you're going to resent your Saturday. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to resent my Saturday. I'm going to resent myself for not saying something. So why would I silence myself when I know what I want? Cool. Ask for the gold highlighter, guys. Ask for it. (laughs) Rum by Fenty Beauty. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Sylvia. Find out more about Janet and her work at JanetMock.com and buy her latest book, Surpassing Certainty, because it's really good. And remember, sharing is caring and subscribing is really important. I'm Sophie Amoruso. We'll be back next week with comedian Whitney Cummings.